It's an interesting Sunday because this is the first time in a long time that the four people who planted this place are all together in the same room between myself and Jeff and Anthony and Joel, the original grind guys. And we're here to have pictures and autographs <laughs> later. <laughs> Not really. You're charging for that right there. Yeah. And we're, we're blessed today to have Mary Evelyn, as usual, to lead in worship, but we also have Kathy on the keyboards and Joel, I think, on the man, just the mandolin today. Yeah. Well, we are back in uh, John. Moving on, we were, last week in the beginning was the word. This week we're going to go into chapter two. Uh, the teaching titled very simply, Obedient, Ultimate, and All-Providing. As I've been reading through the book of John, the Gospel of John, trying to figure out what parts of John I want to preach about, because I can't preach on every verse in John. It will be here forever. Because uh, it's taken us a year and a half to go through the Gospel of John in my Friday morning Bible class. And, I, and we hardly touched everything then either. Uh, but as I've been going through this, I, I wrote a prayer and I, I keep it on my desk at home as I prepare a message. And simply what I'm doing is I'm praying, uh, Lord, show me your glory. Uh, grant me your grace. Show me more of your greatness and grant me more likeness of Jesus. And I hope that we'd all feel that way as we go through these words. Now, in today's reading, there's a verse that confirms that we're on the right track when we think and pray this way. Uh, Jesus today is at the wedding at Cana. It, I'm going to get to that in a minute, but if you go a chapter a little bit further beyond our text, in John chapter 2, verse 11, it says, This was the first of his signs, that changing water into wine, that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested, or in other words, made visible his glory. And then this last line, and his disciples believed in him. Now, if you're wondering if this is the first of the signs, how many signs are there? Well, there are seven signs that are in the Gospel of John. You've got changing water into wine. You've got uh, the healing of the nobleman's son. You've got the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. You've got the feeding of the 5,000. You've got Jesus taking a little stroll out on the water one night. You've got the healing of a blind man, and you've got the raising of Lazarus from the dead. I think those are seven altogether. So here John puts his focus on seeing the glory, and I, I like the Greek word doxa, where we get the word doxology from, praise God from whom all blessings flow. But he is focusing on the glory, seeing the glory of Jesus where his disciples saw his glory, and as a result, believed in him. So that's why John is literally writing this gospel. He wants to reveal the glory of God. And as I was putting this message together, I always think, man, I hope and pray that as we gather together, we, we see the glory of God somehow in this hour or so we're together. Now, it's not because of a, the sermon or anything, but it can be the music and just be being together with fellow believers to encourage each other but be able to walk away and say, we have been in the presence of God. We have seen his glory. So it would be perfectly in accord with John's intention if we were to ask ourselves today, what's the glory of Jesus that's shown in the story of the wedding at Cana? And I'm going to offer three answers. I'm sure there are more, but one of them, we're going to take a look at the glory of an obedient son. We're also going to take a look at the glory of the ultimate purifier. 
And third, we're going to take a look at the all-providing bridegroom. So let's start with this obedient son. Now, when I call him an obedient son, um, I mean the son of the heavenly father. Not, I'm not talking about the son of the earthly mother here. Because we're going to find out he's not particularly obedient to what she asks about in a moment. But now, no doubt, he was obedient to his mom and dad. Uh, but that is not the point here. In fact, I think Jesus' words here were intentionally chosen uh, to reveal a radical allegiance to his father in heaven over his mother's will and above all human attachments and all human affections. So here's the first part of our text, John chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. On the third day, now I'm going to stop there. Why would John put that in there? On the third day, why do you do? Well, because... He's remembering this is three days after Jesus has been baptized. Now, you get that in the other gospel. So on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. So we've not had anything in John yet talk about disciples. He's already got them. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine Jesus said to her, and some of you always kind of recoil when you hear this because you wonder how Jesus actually said this. Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, on surface of that's kind of a surprising comment that Jesus makes here. And I think Jesus knew it would be when he said it. And I think John knew it when he decided to write it down. Uh, there was, and by the way, there's nothing cultural that says that a man can't call his uh, mother woman. So don't get, don't get your knickers in and out here. He wasn't being rude to mom. Now, his response was not disrespectful, but what follows seems a little abrupt as well because he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, an interesting note here, that phrase, what does this have to do with me, is used five other times in the New Testament. And every time, surprising, it is spoken by a demon or by a demon-possessed person to Jesus. I'm just giving an example here. Matthew 8:28. Jesus starts to exert power. Demons were in control, and they say to him, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? And the gist of their reply seems to say, We don't want you messing with us. You shouldn't come to us like it. This is not your affair. So Jesus is kind of doubly abrupt here in this story. And he calls her woman. And he says, this is not your place to be calling out my power. And he could have said it very gently. I mean, he could have said, yeah, mom, I know. I'll take care of it. Don't worry. And that's what he did, but that's not what he said. And so that makes us wonder, why did Jesus respond that way to his mother? Now, I kind of think the answer is that Jesus felt the burden to make clear, not only to his mother, not only to his brothers and sisters who may have been around, and even to his own disciples, that because of who he was, physical relationships on earth would not be the determining factor in what he was doing. It was sort of like saying, look, Mom, God doesn't need any reminders. God's got this. Now, his miracles, in other words, were not at his mother's disposal. She couldn't say, you know, we're out of bread. Could you just whip up a little over here, Jesus, when he was a kid? 
Uh, he's not there to do miracles at the whim of other people. He's entirely under the sway of his heavenly Father. He and the Father are one, and as a result, he and his Father have one will, one desire. So Jesus had to work against the assumption that somehow his physical family did not have an inside track on what he was going to be doing or how he was going to go about doing it. If you read in another gospel in Mark chapter 3, verses 32 to 34, when people called to him while he was speaking, someone shouted out, your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And then looking at the people who are sitting around, he says, these are my mother and these are my brothers. In other words, it's followers, not family, uh, who, are having, who have a saving relationship with Jesus. And this is what we see in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. It says, they have no wine. Woman, what does this have to do with me? In other words, your relationship with me has no special weight. You are a woman like every other woman. That's kind of what he's saying to his mother. My father in heaven, not any human being, determines what miracles I perform. I mean, Jesus wasn't like a little clown where you shoved it in a nickel and he performed a miracle for you. Now, I find this to be very good news, quite honestly. It doesn't matter what family we come from. I mean, your parents, I don't know what your parents were like. They may have been the most ungodly people in the entire county, if not the state, that you were raised in. That will not keep you from finding favor with Jesus. See, it's faith and not family that makes you Jesus' friend. One commentator I wrote, I read, wrote, by the way, mother, this is what he, was, he said, this is the way he would put it. By the way, mother, God needs no reminders. The pathway into my favor is faith, not family. And so here, what we do is that's that person. We see the obedient son. But let's remember who his obedience is to. Not to his mother, not to his family, but to his heavenly father. Well, that's his first part. Here's the second part. He is the ultimate purifier. Now, what I mean by this is there's another reason Jesus to choose these water jars. And sometimes we can read this story. We, we kind of skip over the fact that there are really clues in some things that are kind of hidden into the text. Because these water jars, it says in the text that they were appointed for what? Purification. Not for drinking. This is something you're not going to drink. You're not going to drink this. This is purifying yourself. And so he performs his miracle and he's going to fill them with wine using waters of purification. Now, the reason for this is that he means to point to his own death as the ultimate purification. We are dirty, rotten, miserable sinners. I mean, we are just we are sin. And we ought to be purified some way. And Jesus says, I'm the one who is here to take that process. And, and I'm going to perform a miracle. I'm going to fill them with wine because I'm here to make a point. And, and the reason is he's going to point to his own death as the ultimate purification. Sin is going to be nullified. And he is going to replace every Jewish ritual law. And I think there are three things that kind of point to that in the text. The first thing is Jesus says to his mother at the end of verse 4, My hour has not yet come. It's not time yet, Mom. So what is the hour of Jesus? 
Well, his hour is the hour of his death. What does he say? What's the last thing he basically says? To tell us, It's finished. I've taken care of the purification process. It's all done. I've died for sinners. I made purification for their sins. And let me just give you three examples from John's gospel. In John 7, verse 30, it says, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Or John 12, 27, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. John 12. The purpose, uh, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Always on his Father's time. So Jesus' hour was the hour of his death. When the Lamb of God took away, purified us all, took away all the sins of the world. And this would be the ultimate purification. Are you and I clean? Well, sin gets us all covered. What purifies us? The blood of Jesus. His forgiving power. First John, which John also wrote, said, The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, purifies us from all sin. And by the way, that word purify in that verse is basically the same thing he used when he talked about those jars of purification. So that's one way to point to it. And the other is that even though Jesus rejected his mother's request uh, by saying, my hour has not yet come, he still goes ahead and does the miracle. So it kind of seems to me that uh, what Jesus is doing here is saying, you know, the climactic hour of my death is not here yet. But I'm going to give you a sign that's going to point to my death. And I tell you, as we go through John, I want you to think about this. There are a lot of hidden signs in this gospel. And if you read it too fast, you're going to miss them. You might go, I wonder what that's all about. Well, every time you do that, that's a sign pointing to something. And this little miracle at Cana is pointing to the ultimate purification. But he says here, uh, my, my time is not yet right. I'm going to give you a parable to show you what this is all about. Now, there's another pointer here, and that's that Jesus tells the servants to fill these six purification jars with water. Now, these jars were usually are not used for drinking, like I said before, um, and uh, not for purifying. Now, each of these things, if you do some research, were about 20 to 30 gallons. So this is a lot of wine here. Filled to the brim, he says. Now, it seems to be... That he wants to say, I can take care of the purification here, the rituals of Israel, and replace them with a new way of purification, namely with my blood. Water to wine. And keep in mind, we get, we're going to get there eventually. I, I wrote a note down here where we're going in this. We'll get to this sometime in April. In John chapter 6, uh, in chapter 6, verse 55, Jesus said, my blood is True drink. And in chapter 653, unless you drink the blood of the Son of Man, you will have no life in you. So the second way that Jesus here is manifesting his glory, showing who he really is, is by giving a sign. He's doing this acted out parable, if you will. 
of how his death, his blood, an hour is going to be the final, decisive, ultimate purification for your sins. There's no ritual anymore for cleansing. Up to this point, man, the Jews, oh, I've been reading through, um, to this thing called reading through the Bible in a year. I just waded through Leviticus. <laughs> Holy mackerel, is that a long wade? Uh, I'm in Numbers, which isn't a whole lot easier right now in the Old Testament. But in Leviticus, they have ritual after ritual after ritual in order to become clean, to become purified. And Jesus says, all done. Just me. Just me. Unless you drink the blood, you have no life. You cannot be purified. Only one way to be clean before my father. Now, John, we also know, wrote the book of Revelation. Did he talk about that in Revelation? Yeah, he did. Revelation 7:14. They have washed their robes and made them white. How? By putting them in the blood of the Lamb. So the glory of Jesus is that he alone, once and for all, can purify us from our sins. Now, the pastor can stand up here and say, I, I can tell you, you're, as you confess your sins, I can announce to you that your sins are forgiven. But I better add some words in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I, I mean, I, the only thing I can do, if, if Bo comes up to me and confesses a sin, he says, I, I want to confess. I say, okay, but you're not confessing to me. We're going to confess to the Father. I can tell you, I'll do everything I can to help you. But the one who's going to forgive that sin is the Heavenly Father. But I can also tell you at the same time, because I know the Heavenly Father, I can tell you that he's forgiven your sins if you've, you've done this. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. I mean, that's how all of this is happening. I mean, and he talks about that in the book of Revelation. The glory of God, him and him alone, makes purification. So don't turn to rituals. Turn to Jesus. Now, here's the third part of this, and this is the glory of an all-providing bridegroom. In John chapter 3, verses 29 30, John the Baptist is talking about his cousin here. He speaks one last time before he dies, and he talks about his, his, his cousin's superiority. He said, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase. I must decrease. In other words, John says, I'm not the bridegroom. I was only pointing at him. I might have been the best man, but I'm not the bridegroom. So the last thing he, can, he says is that Jesus in this gospel is that he is the bridegroom. And his growing band of disciples then becomes kind of his bride at that time. And today, what is restore if not the bride of Christ? You and I are the bride of Christ. The first miracle he does is to complete what the bridegroom at any wedding should do. He becomes the perfect groom. So here's the perfect groom. John 2 verses 9 and 10 shows the groom was finally responsible for all of the wedding, which means it was his shortcoming that let the wedding run out of wine. Verse 9 and 10. When the master of the feast, and that's not the groom, but the head waiter, tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom 
So now you see who's really responsible here for the wine. And said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And actually, the point is, no, he didn't. (laughs) No, he didn't. He let the wine run out. The original bridegroom, he let it run out. And that's the way it is with grooms on earth. We are imperfect people. We make mistakes. But very quietly, very powerfully, the real bridegroom, Jesus, plays the role of this perfect, all-providing bridegroom. And out of water, for purification, comes wine. Better than any, any husband could provide. So the third way Jesus kind of manifests his glory in this story is he showed himself to be the all-providing bridegroom for his bride, which is really all people who trust him. So each of those manifestations in these few verses, this little story of wedding at Cana, obedient son, um, ultimate purifier, all-providing bridegroom, is kind of overflowing with grace. Yeah, what's the story about the wedding of Canaan about grace? Anything else? Yeah, grace. Anything else we should learn from this? Yeah, grace. Uh, Would there be another topic we could talk about? Well, yeah, grace. It's all about grace. From his fullness, we receive grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. As worried as we may have been about a lease, it all worked out. I kind of find God's grace in that. You know, sometimes you find favor with other people. Because why? God is behind that. Showing that these people aren't all that bad. These are people of grace. Interesting stuff. From his fullness, grace after grace. As the obedient son, he's not swayed by family ties. Not Mary's. Not yours. Uh, He's swayed by people who despair of pedigrees and rather just simply trust in his grace. What's that song that says, simply to his cross I cling? It's also as the ultimate purifier. Uh, He's not moved by religious ritual. Uh, He replaced all Old Testament rituals. He basically wiped out the entire Old Testament uh, church, if you will, church program. With his own blood. So there's only one way for any of us today to be pure before God and the hardest way for him and the easiest way for you. Wash your robes in the blood of Jesus. Come to him. Live with him. Just that simple. And then he's the all providing bridegroom. So he never, 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 never fails to meet our needs. So in this story, again, it's this life giving wine of his death. Never runs out. He's the perfect all-providing husband for time and eternity. I'm not going to ask any of you who are here that are husbands, have you ever let the bride down? It's not time for true confession. (laughs) But I'm pretty sure I know the answer because I are one. Have I ever let Nancy down? Sure. You are the bride of Christ. Has he ever let you down? Never. Never. Never once. 
The life-giving wine of death in our place never runs out. Perfect, providing for his church. Therefore, as John says in uh, Revelation 19, 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So if there's a concluding statement to any message, I guess today is simply this. Friends, have you made yourself ready? Are you washed in the blood of the lamb? I pray that you are.